ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Torah Studies. This is where we look typically at the weekly Torah portion. However, this week, special edition, no extra charge, special edition Torah Studies, where we look at the holiday, the seasonal holiday. Tis the season to celebrate Purim. For Haman, we say, boo, right? That's how we roll. Friends, this is Purim. This is our Purim edition tomorrow night. In about 24 hours, the holiday begins. We're going to open up the festivities with some Megillah reading. And then we have Friday day, another Megillah reading, and a Su'uda feast. And um, we have gifts of food to friends and tzedakah to the needy. And there's so many wonderful, wonderful mitzvah opportunities to do. The, one of the primary ones, as I just mentioned, is listening to the Megillah twice, hearing the story of Esther twice, the book of Esther. Wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? There's a lot of controversy around the book of Esther that maybe you are not familiar with, which I am very excited to share with you tonight, because who doesn't love hearing lots of controversy, right? I'm, am I right? I am right. So we're going to get into some of the secret story Ariella, I will change your mind. If you don't like controversy, by the end of tonight, you'll be like, yes, actually, not so bad. Not as bad as I thought. I'm going to share with you some secret feuding about the writing of the book of Esther. We're going to bring it into contemporary terms. We have a lot to talk about. Let us begin. The first thing I want to do is share with you my own version. You ready for this? First time ever tried. I am going to share with you my version of the summary of the book of Esther. Are you ready? Here we go. You know people say like the Gantz Megillah? Like, oh no, the whole Megillah? Here we go. This is the whole Megillah in a condensed format. So there's this guy who's a king named Ahasuerus. He's the Persian king. Um, when people made phone calls back then, it was always Persian to Persian. You see what I did there? Yes. Your pain, friends, is my gain. I love the discomfort of the bad jokes. So he is the Persian king. The Persian Empire took it over from the Babylonian Empire that, that destroyed the first temple. Anyway, he's the king. He throws a feast. The people join the feast at the good. I'm glad you like the David. Me too. Um, so he throws a feast. At the feast ends up his Vashti, his wife, the queen, ends up... Uh, um, I'm not listening to the, to, to, the, to the king, and that's it. She is sentenced to be executed, and that's what happens. The execution is executed, and there now needs to be a queen. They search the land. Esther, the fine maiden Esther, is chosen to be the queen. She's Jewish. Her, um, uh, her Ben Dodo, her cousin, Mordechai, not, not uncle, her cousin. It's a mistake in the translation or in the, in the interpretation. Um, her cousin Mordechai tells her, okay, but don't let anyone know that you're Jewish. Um, yeah, Mordechai at some point overhears a plot against the king's life from two, uh, two officers, foils the plot, wraps it in saran wrap. That was a joke. Foils the plot. And... And then the king's life is saved. In the meantime, Haman, the king's advisor, um, plots against the Jews. The king uh, um, approves it. Um, 
Mordechai finds out about it. He gathers the people in fasting and supplication and then brings Esther in on it. And she, she says, you got to go to the king. And she says, I can't go to the king. He hasn't called me in 30 days. You got to go to the king, save the people. She goes to the king, sets up a meeting, says, I need another meeting. At the next meeting, she says, um, uh, um, what does she do? She says, the next meeting um, with Haman, she wants to meet with Haman. And then in the meantime, Haman is erecting these gallows to, to hang Mordechai. And through a very interesting turn of events, the king is up at night and he can't sleep. And he asks his royal chronicles to be read. And he reads a story about Mordechai saving his life. And he said, well, what happened to Mordechai was ever thanked. He wasn't. So he said, oh, we got to do something about it. At that time, Haman comes to the king in the middle of the night to ask him about the gallows for Mordechai. And before he's able to ask about the gallows for Mordechai, the king says to Haman, let's honor Mordechai and let you be the one to do the honor. At that point, the whole narrative shifts. By the way, if I'm giving away the story, spoiler alert, I should have said that before, but this is what we're going to read tomorrow night. And instead of Haman getting permission to, to, to execute Mordechai, Haman is now leading Mordechai through the streets. At that point, the whole narrative shifts. Esther at the party with the king and Haman outs Haman as being the mastermind villain that's trying to destroy her people because, big idea, huge news, I'm Jewish, says Esther to her husband, to the king, and at that point, Haman is executed and hanged on the gallows that he prepared for Mordechai, and the Jewish people are saved, Christ is averted after the Jews defend themselves against the decree. All right, that's kind of the story, and the Jews live happily ever after, or if you want to say it even short, right, they try to kill us, we won, let's eat. That's the way it is, right? They try to kill us. We, uh, we won. Let us eat. So that's the story. That's the basic gist of the story. Fine. But tonight, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the narrative and explore what it is exactly about the story of Esther that is so magical. And moreover, why was a Megillah, why was a book written about the story? To explain my question, Hanukkah is another holiday. It does not have a book that has been accepted as one of the 24, as one of the holy books of Jewish books of scripture. There, there was an account, there is an account of the story of, of Hanukkah, but it's not officially one of the books, one of the holy books. So why is the Megillah one of the holy books? It's not my question. It was the subject of a fierce debate. And now I'm about to reveal... I'm going to pull up Paul Harvey in a moment because you're about to learn the rest of the story. You see, we take the book of Esther for granted. We, tell her, we, we take the fact that there is a Megillah, a scroll, a book of Esther. We take it for granted. Yeah, book of Esther, one of the whole 24 holy books of Jewish scripture. Not so fast. In the times of the story of Purim, in other words, in those Persian days when Mordechai was still Mordechai, when Esther was still Esther, when all this was going on, in the aftermath of the miracle, there was a great debate whether or not the story should be written up as a scroll and officially canonized. Who were, the, who were the combatants, if you will, or the debaters of this debate? None other than Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai and Esther debated whether or not the scroll of Esther... The book of Esther should be written. You can probably guess by its name, book of Esther, who was the one on the side that said we should write the scroll. Can you perhaps, perchance, guess who was the one that advocated to write the book of Esther? You can unmute yourself. Who do you think? 
Was it Esther? <laughs> it was Esther, yes. Yes. Although you didn't phrase it in the form of a question, so the correct answer is who was Esther? I'm kidding. Right? So Esther is the one who advocated for it. Now, if, if, you, if you're wondering where I'm getting this from and how come you've never heard that Mordechai was not for writing this story down and for it to be included in the books of Scripture, where did that come from? Rabbi, you're just making it up. Let me share with you my screen. Let me share my screen with you and let us study this together. This is coming from Megillat Starim, text number one. You know what, Paul, you are, hold on. You are at the top of my screen boxes. If you don't mind, please read text one. Take it away. Don't forget that. Yeah. Verses imply that Mordecai only called for Purim to be commemorated with joy, but he did not call for its documentation nor its annual public reading. It was Esther who primarily pushed for this, as the Talmud relates. Esther sent to the sages, write my story for future generations. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, Esther is the one who pushes that the story be recorded. That the story, that the book, that the scroll become canonized as part of the holy works of Judaism. That Purim is celebrated with the reading of the Megillah. All of this is at the behest of Esther, not Mordechai. In fact, as this text tells us, Mordechai, yes, Mordechai wanted this to be a day of celebration to commemorate the miracle, but to write up a whole Megillah, to write up the scroll, to write up this book of Esther, that was not his intention and it was not his opinion to do so. So, what we are going to do tonight is answer the question that you have. Yeah, yeah, yes, I, I said that correctly. You have a question. I know you have a question. How do you not have a question? How do you read text one and not have a question? Text one drops a bomb. Are we going to just slip out the back door and pretend it didn't happen? Here's the bomb. Esther wanted the book to be written and Mordechai didn't. I know your question. Why didn't Mordechai want the book to be written? Such a, such a nice book. Such a good book. He, in fact, is painted in a nice light also. Mordechai is one of the heroes of the story. Why wouldn't he want the story to be written? Why wouldn't he want this tale to be perpetuated and read throughout the generations. The obvious question is, why was Mordechai against the writing of the book of Esther? And conversely, the question goes the other way. If for some reason Mordechai realized or saw or, or, or felt that it was not the right thing to write this book, it was not the correct thing, then why did Esther feel that it should be written. In other words, actually not in other words, let me, re let me give you another way to understand the question. And that is as follows. There, are there have been many miracles that have happened to the Jewish people. That is without a doubt. There are many times in Jewish history that Jews faced challenge and hardship and were miraculously saved. This is not only in the times of um, Pharaoh in the times of, uh, of, of Haman in the times of, uh, of the Syrian Greeks. This has happened throughout Jewish history multiple times. But we don't find that every time that it happened, there's, it's, it's a national Jewish holiday with, with its own book. So the question is, why did Esther feel like this is worthy of a book? Why is it worthy of a book? Maybe a celebration. Maybe a, a, you know, certain communities 
in, in certain regions should have the celebration. Why is such a public holiday and why a book? Conversely, if it is such a big deal, why, why is Mordechai against it? Those are the questions that I know you had. But what we know for a fact, we don't have answers to these questions yet. We will by the end of tonight's class. But what we do know is that the book of Esther is not a simple thing. And it's not something that was universally um, embraced or universally, well, it was embraced, but it wasn't universally conceived of. None, no less than Mordechai was actually, um, he was actually against it. Let's find out why and let's find out why Esther was for it. So far, so good. Yes. You with me on this so far? Excellent. Checking in. Let's continue. To understand this, we need to really understand the historical context of the entire episode. When did this happen? Why did it happen? What were the factors that led to the story of Purim as captured in the aforementioned Book of Esther? So what happened? How did we get... Well, what happened? We talked about before. I gave you the Gantz of Megillah, the whole Megillah, but... But what led to that? What precipitated that? So let's talk about a little bit of the, of the history. The Jews had had a temple, for 400, a holy temple in Jerusalem, for 410 years. Before that, they had a mishkan, a tabernacle, built by Moses originally, brought into the land of Israel when the Jews crossed over the Jordan uh, with the leadership of Joshua, who took over from Moses, and the Jews lived in, in Israel before their exile for close to 800 years. And then they were exiled by the Babylonians. Last week, by the way, we spoke about the, um, the four evil empires. And we did a little bit of a, of a review of these various kingdoms that exiled and otherwise persecuted the Jewish people. So we'll do it in short. The point is the, Babylon, the Babylonians exiled the Jewish people. And the Persian Empire took over from the Babylonians. Well... The, the, the Persian Empire was actually not unkind to the Jewish people. Even though the Jews at that point were in exile, they did not have a temple. It was still in that 70-year period between the first temple's destruction and the second temple's rebuilding. This story takes place in that 70-year gap between the two holy temples. So there was no temple. And the Jews were in a state of exile. Nonetheless, they were not being persecuted. This is very important. They were not being persecuted by the Persians. Can someone tell me how we know this fact from the story of Purim itself? How do we know, notwithstanding Haman's decree, obviously that was a, a problem, but notwithstanding that, how do we know that as the story of the book of Esther begins, how do we know that the Jewish people are not being persecuted? Someone tell me how we know this. How do we know? What, what indication is there that the Jews were accepted and embraced and not being persecuted? Help me out here. Is it because um, they were invited to the feast? There you go. The Jew, thank you. Yes. Yes, exactly that. The Jewish people were invited to the feast being thrown by the king. This was a royal feast. This was a 180-day feast. It was a massive party. There was one party and another party. It was, can you imagine? I mean, it's like 180 days is half a year. Six months of partying and the Jews were invited to the party. Moreover, listen to this. There was kosher food and beverage at the party. You know, you go on an airplane, you know, before COVID or whatever, you go on an airplane. Well, even not before COVID. Last, uh, I don't know, last number of years, doesn't really work like this, but you used to go on a plane back in the day 
and used to get food. Remember they used to, they used to have used to order meals. Now it's only like international flight. If you're going to be on the airplane for 24 hours, we'll give you some peanuts. I'm not complaining. I'm just I'm just stating a fact. But it used to be that even if you were flying, I don't know, to you know, across states, you know, a decent, an hour and a half, two hour flight, they would already give you some food. I believe, at least that was my recollection back in the day. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but that was my recollection at least. And, you know, uh, they have meals and then they have the kosher meal. And the kosher meal is like, oh, I'm so, so, we're so sorry. We didn't warm it up. It's, it's, it's a frozen chicken. A frozen chicken is not so bad, right? It's uh, eventually it thaws out and inside it thaws out. No big deal. So it, it was kind of like that. You go to Akashverosh's party and everyone's got, oh, everyone's got the lavish food. And then they brought out the little, uh, you know, double, triple sealed with the extra, with the little label on it and the foil. Oh, so sorry. We didn't get a chance to warm it up. And you get this, oh, it's cold. You have to put it down because the, the foil conducts the cool. Anyway, I'm not complaining. I'm just stating a fact. So what's the point? The point is that at the feast, they had kosher food. The Jews were embraced on some level as part of society, which means we should not have the picture that the Jews, at the time of the story of, of, of Purim, that the Jews were being persecuted and being chased and being hounded and there were pogroms. The king had invited them to the feast. That's not a persecuted people. By the way, yes, Haman then proceeds to offer this decree to the king and the king takes it and, and the decree happens. Yeah, that's obviously part of the story. But before that, I'm giving you context, background to, when, before, right, to the story. The background is, in the immediate buildup to the story, the Jews were not being persecuted. Yes, they, were, they didn't have a temple, but life was relatively okay. So the question is, the question is, how could it have happened? How could the Jews have gone from a relatively secure position, the king accepting them and embracing them, on some level, bringing in food from the kosher caterer, right? And beverage. How can it go from that state to, yeah, let's get rid of the Jews? How does it go like that? How do you go from one extreme to the other? If you tell me that the Jews anyway were not liked, that the Jews were being persecuted, and what, you know, you tell me that, and then it, 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 it accelerated and got to a, a breaking point, Makes sense. But you're telling me, well, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm telling you, but, right, the, the history tells us that the Jews were actually in a relatively okay place, and then suddenly it gets terrible. What happened? This is a question that the Talmud discusses. The Talmud, right, the great uh, uh, repository of Jewish wisdom, the Talmud actually asks this question. And it asks it from a bit of a spiritual position. It says, spiritually, what could have happened that the Jewish people could go from a peaceful situation to a terrifying situation? How could they go from tranquility to terror overnight? What could have happened? What was the trigger? What could have happened? I will share my screen. We're going to read text two. This is really important. It's a really important text. All right. Let's jump in to... The text. Um, Dr. Maxi, if you can please read this one. Talmud Tractate Megillah 12a. So we're going to read it. I'm going to ask some questions. We're going to explore it. Please take it away. 
the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai asked him, for what reason were the Jewish people in that generation deserving of annihilation? Rabbi Shimon said to them, you tell me. They said to him, it is because they enjoyed the feast of that wicked one, Ashkaverosh. He responded, this might be true for those in Shushan, but for those in the rest of the world who did not participate in the feast, why should they be killed? They said to him, then you tell us. He said to them, it is because they prostrated before the idol. Thank you. Let me explain the Talmud and what is going on here. So we start off with a question. And I, I tried to lead up to the question with my intro. The question that the students of the Rashbi, Rabbi Shem Bar Yechai, the great uh, master of Jewish law and Kabbalah, the author of the Zohar, his students ask him, what reason, for what reason were the Jews deserving of annihilation? Now, deserving, that word, it's a little bit lost in translation. It doesn't mean deserving. It means, how could it have gone to such a terrible place? In other words, on the ground, physically, spiritually, how could it have happened? How could they go from, as I said before, relative tranquility to facing, it didn't happen, but, but facing a threat of, God forbid, utter annihilation? How could it have happened? So, I love the answer. Rabbi, the teacher says to them, you tell me. In other words, <laughs> what? I should tell you everything. I, I want, let's, let's discuss it. What do you think? So their offer, their idea was, or their, their thought is, that, um, oh, it's because the, pe the Jews enjoyed the feast of the wicked king. They enjoyed the feast. So the Rashbi, the teacher, pushes back. Eh, not everybody went to the feast. The feast was in the capital city of Shushan. Um, what about the Jews? That, hold on, let me explain. The, 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 the Persian Empire contained massive swaths of land. And Jews didn't only live in one center. Remember, this is during the exile. So there, there, Jews had been exiled. There was a bit of a, of a movement around the kingdom, around the empire. So the Rashbi says, yeah, the Jews in Shushan may have gone to the feast in the capital, locals, but what about everyone else? So what's the reason then? He said, because they bowed down before the idol. I should explain what this is. What idol are we talking about? Prostrating before the idol. So this refers actually to something that happened a few decades prior in the times of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar um, went went around to the Jewish people and said that everybody has to bow down to the idol and, and to an idol, and pretty much everybody did so except for three individuals who then he threw into a furnace and they came out unscathed. But that's another story. The point is that at some point the Jews had kind of, you know, bowed down to an idol and he says that that's what, that's what did it. So we really have two opinions, if you will. The students of the Rashbi and the Rashbi himself, one opinion is they enjoy the feast. The other one is they bow down to an idol. What I would like to attempt right now is to kind of show the common denominator or the commonality between these two positions. And to do so, we have to go a little bit deeper into what happened at the feast. So let's explain the feast. Ahasuerus, the king, the Persian king now, is throwing this feast, this massive lavish feast, and he invites the Jews. I want, let's do, let's do this together. It's a bit of an exercise. Um, imagine you're living, you're a Jew living at that time. Imagine. 
right? You're exiled. In other words, it's, you, you don't have sovereignty over your land. You don't have a temple. So you're under a host country, which is a bit of an adjustment after being hundreds of years under your own um, sovereignty. And now you don't have your own sovereignty. So just kind of like allow that to be part of your, you know, feeling and imagination about the context. And now, and, and you're kind of at the mercy of the king on some level. Now the king invites you to the royal feast. How do you feel about that? How do you feel? Unmute yourself. How do you feel about being invited to the king's feast? How do you feel? You might think that you finally made it into society. Right? I like that. I agree. Yes. Imagine you feel like... Suspicious. Okay, so it could be... So suspicion, yes. I see suspicion. But I also see what Sarah said, which is a sense of, you know what? Maybe we've, ma we've become mainstream. Maybe we'll be accepted and not seen as the outcast. Maybe, just maybe, someone will love us like we should be loved, right? Maybe, finally, we found acceptance by the, by the foreign um, sovereign nation. Maybe we finally have arrived as a people accepted by the nations of the world or the nation of the world, the world power at that time. We finally arrived. And you would think that the Jews strategically, listen to this, strategically would, would say, you know what, let's go to this feast and be good citizens, be good neighbors, right? Show that we're like everybody else. We are citizens of Persia. We're going to the king's party. We're participating. We're smiling. We're clanking our glasses. We're eating our frozen food, right? We're doing our thing. We're there with everybody. We're not, not eating not kosher. We'll eat the kosher stuff, but we'll be there. We'll be good citizens, right? It'll, and it'll be good for us. It'll be really good for us. So there's, it's, it sounds great. And honestly, if somebody explained it to you, to you and I, we might say, you know what? That's a really good idea. Let's go to the party. Let's go. Let's be good citizens. However, however, there is a problem here. And the problem is similar to what the teacher, the Rashbi, ultimately tells his students, right? There's a bit of a logistical question about whether everybody was involved in, 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 in the sin or not everybody involved, but that's a technicality. In truth, both versions of what happened, what went wrong, are the same. You see, going to the feast is like serving an idol. Are you with me what I'm saying? Did, did what I said just say make any sense? You're with me, right? The students of the Rashbi give one answer. The teacher pushes back, gives his own answer. What I'm saying, a radical interpretation, is that they're not disagreeing. It's only um, incidental that the teacher is saying, yeah, but we have to find something that everybody did. But it's not a different type of mistake. It's the same mistake. In other words, going to the feast, sorry, enjoying the feast is the same as bowing down to an idol. So let's explain that. What is bowing? What? does bowing to an idol represent? Again, unmute yourself. Bowing down to an idol, what does it represent? Idol worship. Idol worship, good. But what, but what is that? What, what, what is the statement of idol worship? What are we actually saying? That you've put somebody else's principles in the forefront of your life. There's right. Oh. Like that they've put those principles before Hashem. Good. 
Excellent, excellent. So I, I, th I, think, um, I think you're all kind of saying the same thing. In other words, instead of me being under God, right, and in God's embrace, God is taking care of me. I have one source of, of, of one source where all the blessings come from, where I need to direct my, uh, my requests, where, where my hopes and dreams lie. Instead of one force serving an idol means, I also got this option, right? I got this other thing I'm working on. I got another angle, right? God, you're amazing, you're awesome, but I'm also working another angle. I got this figured out. I got another way to do this. So yeah, I'll pray God, I'll pray to you that you'll give me what I need, but just in case, I got a plan B. That's my idol. Are you with me on that? It's like the joke that they tell. Don't try this at home. About the, the Jewish woman, the elderly Jewish woman. She's, I don't know, she's 120 years old. And on her deathbed, you know, she's, uh, she's nearing the end. She asks her grandchildren to please pull out a box from under her bed. A secret. They had no idea there was a box under her bed. They pull, you guys know this one? Yes, no? No? All right. And they pull out the box and they hand it to her and everyone, it's a dusty box and uh, they're wondering what, 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 what's going on. She opens the box and it's a big cross. A Jew, a Bobby, Jewish, it's a big cross at Salem and she goes and gives it a kiss and they say, Bobby, what, what, what are you doing after all these years of, of, of dedication to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism? What's with the cross? And she says, listen, you never know. I'm just playing it safe, right? You never know. You gotta. So, but that's what idol worship is, right? Idol worship is, listen, God, I believe in you. I trust you. But just in case, let me make also a plan B. Which means that obviously, you know, all, all jokes aside, what it means is that there's something lacking in our true trust in God, right? It's we trust, but, tell you a story. There was, <laughs> there was once this um, performer, um, I don't know what you would call a person like this. Oh, I know it. A tightrope walker. Yeah, tightrope walker. Um, who decided to walk across Niagara Falls. Yeah, Niagara Falls. I think it actually happened, right? Not necessarily all the details. Um, yes, was there one somebody who walked across Niagara Falls? Yes? Okay, there was. So imagine the scene. Niagara Falls. Whoosh. Right, with the roaring falls, uh, a string strung across, a thin string, you can't even see it, and this guy is walking across, and a crowd builds, and, and he cries out to the crowd, he yells at the crowd, do you believe I can make it across? And everyone says, yes, we believe. And he, he starts walking, he makes it to the other side. And then on the other side, he has a prop. And what's the prop? The prop is, hold on, what's the prop? The prop is juggling, juggling something. So he says, do you believe that I can juggle while walking across? And they say, yes, we believe you can. And he, and he juggles and he does it and everyone cheers and, and applauds. And then he says, pulls out a wheelbarrow, a wheelbarrow. Do you think I could, like a heavy wheelbarrow. Do you think I could push a wheelbarrow across uh, the tightrope across the falls? Yes, we believe and he does it. And then he says, do you believe that I could push a wheelbarrow with a person inside of it across? Yes, we believe. So he says to the loudest person, so will you jump in? Will you volunteer? Yeah, no, no. Suddenly they don't believe. Suddenly they don't believe. <laughs> right up until it got personal. Everyone believed when it got real. 
The question is, what happens to our beliefs? We believe in God theoretically, but when we need the blessing, yeah, do we turn to the idol and say, you know what? What can you do for me? That's the question. That's the question. When a push comes to shove, it's easy to have faith and trust when we don't need anything or whatever, when it's not a pressing situation. The question is, when things, when, when something's at stake, where do we turn? Where do we turn? Do we stick with God or do we sell out? And so the two opinions in the Talmud, the students of the Rashbi and the Rashbi, Rashbi is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The students of the Rashbi and the Rashbi himself are giving the same answer. It's a technicality that he says, well, one was experienced by everyone and one was only experienced by Jews and Shushan, but it's the same point. They sold out. Either by worshiping an idol directly or by enjoying the fact, oh, ho, ho, we got invited. Now we're cool with the king. Now we're secure. That was the thought process. We're vulnerable until now. We don't have a temple. We don't have a home. Well, we don't have sovereignty in our homeland. We don't have a holy temple. We're under a foreign king. Things are shaky. But the king invites you to the feast. You feel better. Ah, Baruch Hashem. We feel good about it. Of course we're going to go. Yeah, we'll go. We feel good about it. It doesn't say that they, the students didn't say that the problem was they went to the feast. It says that because they enjoyed the feast or they enjoyed that they were invited to the feast. That was the problem. And again, it's the idea of selling out. Instead of putting their trust in God, they put their trust in God and the king. Just in case. Which according to Kabbalah and Chassidus, as the Rebbe articulates, is the beginning of the problem. What's the beginning of the problem? The beginning of the problem is God says, all right, one second, one second, time out. God says, do you need me or are you good? Did you figure it out on your own? No, 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 we got this. We got this. God, you're good. You can do your own thing. We got this. We got the king. He's, we're friends. We're good. God says, you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. We got to figure it out. We got this idol thing. We got this other force. We got Achashverosh. We got, we got, we got the diploma. We, we got all that stuff worked out. We're set. God, you're, we're really, we're, we're okay. Thank you so much for the offer. We're good. God says, you sure? Yeah. God says, good luck. Good luck. Because you're dealing with a human king. You're dealing with an Ahasuerus. And the next second, Haman comes to him, offers him some, some cash, and, and that's it. So this is the way that we can understand the background of the story in a much deeper way. Right? Again, the story goes from everything being cool to everything not being cool. And then it's cool again at the end of the story, right? But everything was fine, relatively, and then things flip, and there's a severe decree, the worst of all time, actually, against the Jewish people. Men, women, and, ch men, women, and children, one day, all God forbid, slated to be annihilated, literally on one day, unprecedented before or after, never happened before or after, such a severe decree. Now, it didn't come to pass, but that decree hang over their heads, unprecedented. So how does it happen? According to the Talmud, it happened because the Jews turned away from where they needed to be. They said to God, thank you, but we got this. 
and God says, you got this? Good luck. To put it in another context, the way the Rebbe explains, he says the existence of the Jew, well, it's, a, it's an ancient teaching of our sages. The existence of the Jewish people is so precarious. It's like one sheep amidst 70 wolves, right? And if not for the shepherd who's watching the sheep, there's no doubt what the outcome would be. But what happens if the sheep says, no, 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 shepherd, you go home. Go, 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 go have dinner. It's fine. I ha I'm friends with the wolves. Friends with the wolves. Sure, you're friends with the wolves. <laughs> Let's see how far that gets you. It's like the other story of, um, of Rabbi Akiva, who was studying Torah. This is later on in Jewish history, the time of the Roman persecution of the Jewish people, the Second Temple. And uh, Rabbi Akiva was studying, to teaching Torah publicly in defiance of Roman law. Um, and uh, somebody came to him and said, Rabbi, uh, with all due respect, uh, you're endangering your own life. Maybe stop teaching Torah, stop studying Torah. And he said, Torah is life. He gave the example, it's like a fish that's swimming. And the fox comes over to the fish and says, Fish, you have to swim so fast to avoid the fisherman's net. I have a solution. I I'll take you to a place where there's no danger. The fisherman will never find you. Come with me to dry land and you'll be safe. And the fish says, ha ha, fox, you're so smart, right? Shkoyach, thank you very much. If I go with you on dry land, I'm for sure a goner. If I'm in the water, there's a chance. Maybe I'll survive, maybe I'll be caught. But if I go to dry land, I'm for sure done. So here's the point. You want to make friends with the wolves? Fine, but that's, uh, that's, that's a fraud. Unless we have faith in God, faith in the wolves is not, is not going to work out. And that's how the Talmud explains now, the story of, of, of Purim begins, really. That's the beginning, that's the starting point of this whole holiday, of this whole story of the Book of Esther. This explains a very unusual detail in the story about Mordechai, again, one of the, one of the heroes. So what's the detail? I'm going to share with you text number four. Text four is taken straight from the Book of Esther. But actually, before I do that, because I feel like I developed an idea and I should check in, make sure that everyone's on the same page. Does that, is everybody with me so far? Yes, Talmud, the explanation, the two ideas being one idea. Okay, fine. All right, I'm seeing enough nods that I'm comfortable to, to, to move forward. Let's take a look at text number four. Skipping text three, don't worry about it. I, I, uh, I summarized it. Here we go, Ariella. Please read, if you will. Please unmute and read text four. This is from the book of Esther. <clears throat> okay. And all the king's servants who were in the king's gate would kneel and prostrate themselves before Haman. For so had the king commanded. But Mordecai would neither kneel nor prostrate himself. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would neither kneel nor prostrate himself before him, Haman became full of wrath. But it seemed contemptible to him to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him Mordecai's nationality, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout Ahasuerus' entire kingdom, Mordecai's people. So Thank you. So this is how the Megillah tells us where Haman kind of developed his anger against the Jewish people in it, sounds like, from this text, from these verses, again, Book of Esther, chapter 3, it sounds like that it was due 
to Mordechai not bowing down. That's pretty much what it says here. Clearly that everybody used to bow down before Haman. He was one of the king's top advisors or the top advisor of Ahasuerus. And everyone was bowing down. It was part of the thing, the custom that everyone did. They bowed down to the king and to this dude Haman. Mordechai didn't. And that enraged Haman. Haman became full of wrath. He got really upset. And he said, I got to get revenge, but not only against Mordechai, but against Mordechai's people. So I want to ask a simple question, a klutz kasha. All right, simple question is, so why didn't Mordechai bow down? What was the problem? Why didn't Mordechai bow down? If everybody's bowing down, if that's the custom, why didn't he bow down? Now, you might say, well, you're not allowed to bow down. Um, You're not allowed to bow down to, uh, to, um, to, to honor somebody. It's not true. It's not true. The Torah tells us stories about, about Jews bowing down. For example, when Jacob goes down to Egypt and meets Pharaoh, what does Jacob do? He bows down. So, so, so you can't tell me that Mordechai is not allowed to bow down to another human being. It's happened before. Jacob bowed down. So what's the problem? So our sages tell us, no, no, it's because Haman had an idol around his neck or whatever. He had some sort of idol, so bowing down would be akin to idol worship. That's in the tradition why Mordechai wouldn't bow down. But even that doesn't fully make sense. That also doesn't fully make sense. Because we know that Mordechai was also a top advisor of the king. And Mordechai could have simply said, right? Mordechai could have simply said that, um, look, I'm exempt from bowing down. This is, this is actually an answer that's given by some commentaries why Mordechai didn't actually have to bow down as a fellow um, honored individual. So, you know, it was like the simple folk would bow down to members of the royal whatever, entourage or royal cabinet, whatever, whatever they were called. But Mordechai was a fellow member of that Maybe Haman was a closer advisor, but Mordechai was also involved. Remember, Mordechai saved the king's life. He had that connections. He was hanging around by the king's gates. He knew these things, right? He was involved. So what's the deal? So in other words, why didn't Mordechai just say, hey, 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 Haman, I love you, bro. But look, this is not, you know, I'm a fellow, fellow um, officer, fellow official. No, he tells Haman, I'm not bound down because I'm Jewish. In other words, it's kind of like, a thumb in your face. It's like, you know why I'm not bowing down? Because I'm not bowing down. Why couldn't he have just said, why couldn't he have given a more diplomatic answer? Do you understand my question? Mordechai could have said, I'm not bowing down. Please don't take offense. He could have written him a nice email and sent a box of chocolates. He could have said, look, Haman, I love you, brother. It's fine. However, it's not, listen, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fellow officer and an advisor. So, you know, that's not how we roll could have made Haman feel okay, maybe placate Haman, but he didn't. He said, I'm not bowing down, and that's it, end of conversation. So, so, so why is this? And in truth, in truth, Mordechai was actually criticized. Mordechai was actually criticized by the people. The people were upset at Mordechai for provoking Haman against the Jewish people. Mordechai's fellow Jews were upset. Why are you not bowing down? Or, why, or at least why don't you give a better excuse than I'm not, I'm not bowing down? Why don't you do this diplomatically so that Haman is not going to be angry? Why was Mordechai so zealous? Why was he such a zealot? 
And for this, we already have the answer. Because Mordechai knew that the culture that was happening with the Jewish people was going to be destructive. And he felt, or was already destructive, and he felt it has to end now. No diplomacy, no no um, pretending, no, honor, no, no, no honoring, no going to the king's feasts. That's it. We are who we are, and we are under God, and we don't bow down to any idols around your neck. I'm not giving you excuses. Straight up, I'm not bowing down to you, Haman. I'm not going to the king's feast. Mordechai also told the people not to go to the king's feast. By the way, parenthetically, we're not going to the... I mean, don't go to the feast. Don't bow down to Haman. That's it. No, no monkey business. That was Mordechai's perspective. Mordechai, in essence, the way I'm explaining it tonight, Mordechai was a, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a... Hardliner. A hardliner. Perfect. He was a hardliner Jewishly. He was God, go God or go bust. That's it, right? Go God or go home. That's it. God is in control. No Achashverosh. No Haman, you want us to bow down, you want us to, to, to start, you know, honoring you, King, Mr. King, that you're in control, not happening, we are who we are, we are under God, we have trust in God, we don't need a king, we don't need diplomacy, nothing done. That was Mordechai. What was Esther's perspective? Esther, as the story unfolds, Esther is more of the diplomatic type. Now, even though it was Mordechai's idea to go to the king and tell him to stop what he's doing, but Esther finds the way to do it in a diplomatic way, right? Esther is the one that engages in diplomacy. She works within diplomatic means to effectively cool the tension and alleviate the problem. So Mordechai's approach... It's very important to understand the distinction. Mordechai's approach is the hardline approach. Mordechai says, that's it. We're not afraid of who we are. We're not embarrassed of who we are. We're not hiding who we are. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. This is what we're about. Take it or leave it. Or don't even take it or leave it. I don't even care what you say. I don't care what you say or what you think. This is who I am. This is what a Jew is. A Jew serves the Abishar, a Jew serves God. A Jew trusts in God, and that's it. I don't need to go to your feasts. I don't need to bow down to you. I don't need to lobby Congress. I don't need that. The Abishar is in control. That's God is in control. That's Mordechai. And Esther, Esther says, yes, that's true, but let's, let's work this out on the ground. Let's work this out. Let's, let's, let's make a plan. Let's lobby, diplomacy. So it's these two opinions as to how we should deal with opposition. Do we deal with opposition by running it over or by trying to influence it, right? And explain the position to it and get it on board with us. Does that make sense? Yes? This was where the divergence of opinion is between Mordechai and Esther, which answers our original question, which I'll remind you of that right now. We originally began with the discussion about the book of Esther, the Megillah. And I told you 
that according to our tradition, it was Esther who said, let's write the book. And Mordechai said, we don't need a book. We should celebrate the victory, but we don't need a book. Why not? Why did Esther want the book and Mordechai not want the book? Well, now we have a bit of an understanding of who they were and what they were about and their perspectives about what it means to be a Jew in the world. Now we can understand why yes book or why no book. Esther says, look, the way it works is we have to work diplomatically. We have to work through the world, with the world, with our opponents. There are people out there who otherwise might be our opponents. We have to bring them in. We have to, we have to accommodate. We have to make friends. We have to work with those around us. We have to be good citizens. Now, does it mean we have to sell out? No, not sell out. But some sort of, some sort of diplomacy somewhere, somehow. That's what, that's what Esther says. So Esther says, we need a book. We need the Megillah that tells the story. Tells the story about the diplomacy and tells the story about how the king um, decided this way, decided that way, and how the meetings went and how the story turned. Tell it on the ground. And Mordechai said, such an elaborate story. You don't need a whole, you don't need a whole Megillah. It's simple. The Jews weren't on board with God. They got back on board with God. End of story. It's a celebration of, of God's salvation. You need a story? You need to write a whole McGill about it? It's simple, right? The Jews had wandered away a little bit from, from pure faith to God. They returned their trust in God, and that's the end of the story. You need to know about the king marrying a Jewish queen, and eventually she influences her, him through, you know, through a meeting and through you know, speaking to him as a, as a wife to a husband. You need all that discussion. That's diplomacy. That may be what it looks like on the surface, but what really happened is everyone got back on board with God. God made a miracle. End of story. You with me on the distinction? Mordechai says it's, there's no story here. It's God. And Esther says there's a story the way it plays out, there's a story. So who's right? In essence, they're both right. It's just different approaches. So one approach is hardline, unafraid, tell the truth as, as you see it, come what may, this is it, and this is, this is where, where the truth lies, and all my eggs are in one basket, God will provide. The other approach is, yes, God will provide, I trust in God, but we got to work the angles. The question is, what's the right approach for us, right? How diplomatic should we be in the 21st century, right now, 21st century? If we're thinking about the 21st century Jew, is it the diplomatic Jew or the in-your-face Jew? I don't mean that in a negative way, but I mean like the, the loud and proud Jew. Are we meant to be loud and proud or, uh, you know... Maybe my neighbors don't realize that I'm Jewish because I never told them because, you know, why rock the boat? You with me on that? Yes? Right? So do I put up the mezuzah that everyone should see in my apartment building? Or, uh, let me, I believe in God, I'm going to dive in every day, I'm studying Torah, but I don't want to really go, like, out there. That's like, I'm not saying that's Esther's, I'm not exactly correlating the two, comparing the two, I'm just saying... Wait, are we more like Mordechai or more like Esther? It's a question that we might have living in the modern world. Do we adopt the loud and proud Jewish persona or the diplomatic, under the surface, 
you know, playing the, you know, testing the environment, doing some polling, and figuring out, you know, where we are. It's a question. So, um, th there have been people throughout, throughout our, our history, even in modern times, that have adopted the first approach. Loud and proud, unapologetic, Jewish, come what may, this is what it is, wearing my Judaism on my sleeve, and others, many others, have taken the more subtle approach. Funny story I heard about Sharansky. Sharansky, Natan Sharansky, right? So he was, um, he was in Soviet imprisonment for nine years, I believe. And he tells the story that he used to antagonize his interrogators. That he used to, like, they used to interrogate him and this and that, very serious, and he used to, like, make jokes. So he said, you know, they were once um, interrogating him, and, um, and he said, y you know what's going on with you guys? He said, you know, the, the Americans got to the moon first. Yeah, so you guys had a meeting. You guys had a big cabinet meeting. I, I know what happened behind closed doors. And um, I have the story here. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev. Leonid Brezhnev, does that, uh, that name sound familiar? The head of the, uh, what is it? The head of the... Yeah, Politburo. Yeah, so he, so he says, I know what happened. So Brezhnev says, comrades, we have failed. The Americans got to the moon first. We're going to land on the sun first. That's what we're going to show them. We will land on the sun first. And they all tell him, uh, but, but comrade, it's, uh, it's the sun. We're going to burn up. He says, don't take me for a fool, he replies to them. We'll land at night. This is what he was, this is what Sharansky would tell the interrogators about how foolish the communists are and the leaders of communism are. But listen to what he tells in the story. He says, listen to the postscript. It's better than the joke. The postscript is, he says, they wouldn't laugh. Because they were like, they couldn't laugh to show that they realized that he was right. So they had to like stifle a laugh upon which he would tell them. He said, you can't even laugh when you want to laugh. And you're telling me that I'm in prison? That's what he would tell them. You can't even laugh at a good joke when you want to laugh. And I'm the one that's in jail. I'm the one that's imprisoned. Look in the mirror. That's what he would tell them. That's how he would get into their heads. Some people are brash and bold. I'm in prison. You're interrogating me. I don't care. I'm going to mach lezanus. I'm going to make you look like a fool. I'm going to tell you that you're looking like a fool. I'm going to tell you straight up. Some people have a different approach, a little bit cowering in fear, and maybe a more diplomatic approach. Question is, 21st century Jew, loud and proud or subtle under the radar? More Mordechai or more Esther? So, I'm here to tell you that the question is a faulty question because it's a faulty premise. As the Rebbe said many times, we live in a new era. We live in a free country, a country in which there's no longer a need to be scared, no longer a need to hide. The question doesn't even exist. You see, the whole question is, what do you do when there's opposition? Do you bulldoze or do you kind of like work in other means? And the Rebbe said, what opposition? Where's the opposition? You want to arrange a public menorah lighting? 
City Hall is very happy to accommodate. You want to arrange public lectures in Judaism in, in, in uh, the Academy of Medicine in Midtown? They're happy to rent you the space. You want to street Judaism, ask people to put on tefillin out in Midtown, out in Manhattan, out wherever it is? No one's stopping you. The mindset is the problem. We're still stuck in a gullus mindset, in an exile mindset. We're still stuck in a Persian mindset of, oh no, there's Haman, what should we do? So should we bulldoze or should we kind of hide and, and go in another way? And the Rebbe said, that's a mentality that's stuck in another generation. We're no longer facing that, at least here in the U.S., we're no longer facing that challenge. There's nothing stopping us, and it's not that we have to be loud and proud to prove a point. There's no point that needs to be proven. We can be proudly Jewish without fear, without having to hide, or without having to ram it down anyone's throat to prove a point, to compensate for a feeling of inferiority. There's no reason to be on the defensive or to be on the offensive to, to prove a point. We can be and we must be proud to be Jews, not for anyone else, but just for ourselves. So you want to put up a mezuzah? Put up a mezuzah. Not to make a statement. Not to, to tell Haman in your face, right? Oh, I'm, I'm doing it for you. And not in a way that's, that's hidden. We're just doing it straight up because this is what we're about. We live in the 21st century. In 2021, we have to get our heads in a different space. We have opportunity. It's time, my friends, as I call tonight's class, taking the mask off right? It's time to take the mask off. No more hiding. No more hiding. No more not hiding to prove a point. It's not about proving a point. It's just about being authentic and being genuine. This is who we are. There's no need for a mask anymore. The world is more than ready to embrace and to respect those who respect themselves. Let us Never forget who we are. Let us be proud of who we are. Let us be a light of kindness, not an in your face. Let us be a light of kindness and holiness and beauty unto all. And let us trans help together with everyone transform the world into the beautiful garden that it is meant to be. As we get ready for Purim, let us remember that transformations happen in a moment. Last Purim, the world, even if we didn't know it, was on the precipice of uncharted territory, negative stuff. May this Purim bring about the opposite transformation. A transformation from darkness and negativity and pain and sorrow and loss and sickness and illness into positivity and blessings. The transformation can happen in a moment. Let's do our job to be proud of who we are and to to change our, to shift our perspective. It's not about changing anyone else's perspective anymore. It's about changing our own perspective. No one's stopping us from being proud Jews. No one. Not even in an airport, in the lounge, you can wrap tefillin before your flight in the morning and no one will stop you. I've done it myself. <laughs> All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. Let's go into Purim. We're within 20, less than 24 hours away. Let's go in with an energy. Let's go in with a confidence. And indeed, as we read the story of Esther, may the miracles continue to unfold and to happen, not only in those days, but in these very days. 
And let us say, L'chaim. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Have a blessed evening, a blessed day, and a blessed Purim. Purim Sameach. Thank you all. Pleasure, pleasure. Mom, I see some elaborate situation. What is that? That's from you. I knew that, I think. Nice. Is that a Purim scene? Look at that. That's a that's a um, a 3D Purim scene. That's fantastic. Playing the Purim song. All right. May all the miracles indeed come in 3D. Any questions, comments on tonight's class? Online or no. questions, comments on the class? I have a question. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to make sure. It seems like Esther. I don't think she was. Um, she definitely wasn't selling out, in fact, and you didn't say she was, but she, but she and she did work within the, the, the ways that she could operate right. and be the king's wife, but she was willing to sacrifice her life because she right. was a very strong person. Like, you'd have to say that if you go the diplomatic way, it's slippery, it's a down a slippery slope unless you have the strength and the courage and the, the, the qualities of an Esther. Correct. But the main point is we don't need that anymore is what you were saying. Yes. Okay. No, but I think it's really important what you're saying. In other words, Esther was able to pull off diplomacy, but not sell, she didn't sell out. But she did work through somewhat diplomatic means. But it's a slippery slope from diplomacy to, I, I know I'm using a harsh term, but to selling out. It's a slippery slope to that. She didn't. She didn't go down that path. But the point of tonight's class is it's a different approach, and it could lead to ultimately saying, you know what? I know, I know where the miracle is going to come from, and, and we don't need God at this point. So that's, that's the idea that's very important to understand. And in general, two approaches, they could be two valid approaches, but the Rebbe's point, which the point that I shared tonight is basically the Rebbe's teachings about, about this generation, our times. The Rebbe says we don't need, we don't need to worry anymore. We don't need to worry which way we should go. It's, there's, there's, there's no... Listen, I'm sure we can... Anti-Semitism is still around, etc. But by and large, we live in a free country. We're not living under some sort of foreign, hostile entity. Baruch Hashem, we're able to... to, to Practice our Judaism without fear. So let's let's embrace the opportunity and let's just do it. Not to prove a point tonight. But yeah, point point well taken. Um, any other questions, comments? I'm looking around. So far so good. Okay, good. I'll just make a quick announcement about Purim. So tomorrow night the holiday begins. We have a uh, gathering at 6.30 at Chabad in town with, a, with the Megillah reading. At about, I think the Megillah is going to be right around 7 o'clock-ish, 7.05, somewhere around then. And then uh, Friday morning, we're trying to pull together a minion for Shachris at 8 o'clock, followed by Megillah, 8, 8 in the morning, followed by Megillah. But definitely we're going to have an afternoon gathering, 5.30 p.m. at Chabad in town with Megillah reading and then some Shabbat Fair, Shabbat food, some challah, and some uh, chicken soup as we go from Purim straight into Shabbos. It's kind of a cool setup this year. The Friday Purim is, uh, is a nice segue. All right. Purim, Happy Purim, and uh, only blessings for all of us. All right.
We'll see you all. Take care. Laila Tov. Bye, everyone.